You know, we sophisticated Christians too often dismiss the Shamgars among us. We would want a Shamgar to get a degree, to go to military school, to learn how to organize a, a battle plan, and not just drop his pruning hook, pick up his ox goad, and off to the front lines of God's spiritual war. Welcome to the God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. The third chapter of the book of Judges is where we're parked right now. The study is called Get Over Yourself. Today's particular installment, part two of a study we're calling Be Consistent. Josh Moody is senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and I'm Todd Basti. Well, Josh, so far we've met Othniel, who was always introduced as the son of Caleb's younger brother. Oh, we've just briefly met Ehud, whose difference we'll expand on in a moment, and then it's on to Shamgar, another unlikely superhero for us to be encouraged by. Yes, indeed. And in this uh, series here, and indeed in this this message in particular, we are faced again and again with the wonderfully encouraging truth that God can use even you and me, unlikely heroes that we all are. When we do these studies, taking a look at longer passages, we sometimes don't have time to include the passage. So we encourage you to grab your Bible, have Judges 3 available, and perhaps go back and read the chapter after the study and see if some of the insights don't land in a more dynamic way for you. Judges chapter 3 is where we're at. This is part two. Be consistent. Here's Josh. Well, friends, we're turning to our Bibles now, and we've got up to Judges chapter 3, and beginning at verse 7. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. You might not have got those names right if you'd done a Sunday school quiz this morning, do you think? Not exactly famous, are they? And even at their own time, they were hardly the kind of people that the Israelites expected God to use, as we will see. They were unusual in various ways, and yet God took them and used them. The second hero uh, is uh, just too different, even a little bit weird, frankly. And so second, Ehud. And uh, this is from verse 12 to verse 30. Ehud was a left-handed man, that detail is significant, who got called to be a judge and then sent with tribute to an extraordinary obese, wicked ruler named Eglon, a sort of Jabba the Hutt, if you will. Now, the details here reveal that this is the message. So, say, Ehud is left-handed. Now, uh, you know, nowadays, that can be a good thing if you're a tennis player, you know? Left hand spins the way you're not expecting, that kind of thing, right? But in those days, uh, being left-handed was considered not only sort of unusual, but a sign of being positively odd. Something wrong, perhaps, up top. See? And what's more, literally, Ehud is not left-handed, as the New International Version translates it, but is literally, he said, that his, his right hand is withered. And so it's possible that actually Ehud used his left hand because his right hand was congenitally deformed or had become incapacitated through some serious accident or, or something like that. It was withered, his right hand. And so Ehud is being presented as a natural outsider, very, very different from everyone else. The last person you would expect to do something heroic for all the people in a popular mass movement. Nonetheless, 
God had chosen him to be the people's judge. And verse 15, they they had so little faith in this guy, this left-handed guy, that they just cravenly send him along with their tribute to the Jabba the Hutt figure because they they don't think anything's going to change. They can't believe he'll save them. Literally, another fascinating detail, they send this payoff money to Eglon as his slaves by Ehud's hand. Again, the hand, the left hand, the oddity is being emphasized. It's as if the storyteller is drawing our attention to all these details to say, never, now listen, you never think you're too different to be used by God. Never think that. And then, as I say, it's in all the details. To cap it all off with that irony that is so characteristic of the Ehud occasion. Ehud, the left-handed, the right-handed deformed, with the tribute sent by his hand, is, we are told, of the tribe of Benjamin. Which means, son of my right hand. <laughs> now ask yourself this. What must it have felt like to be of the tribe of the son of my right hand and to have been called by God to be the judge, the leader of that people and all the people, and to have been born with a formed right hand? You would ever be marked out as different, wouldn't you? Useless. And when, oddity of oddities, God picked him out as their judge, they had so little faith in him, this this withered right-handed guy of of the tribe of Benjamin, they had so little faith in him, they just used him as a message boy to keep on sending their tribute. They didn't think anything would change by this Ehad character, but, you know, funny up top. And yet, it is precisely his deformity that God uses. He strapped the sword to his right thigh, where it would be least likely to be detected. He was accepted by the Moabites as a messenger because so obviously deformed in his battle hand, in his right hand, they, they, they had no fear of him. And nor did the king when he sent away all his guards to receive the private message. You know, very often this is the way it works. It is not the great and the perfect that God uses so often to um, win the victory. It is the broken and the rejected. Christ came to bind up the brokenhearted. A bruised reed he would not break. A smoking flax he would not put out. It's the same with those very unlikely 12 disciples, isn't it? I mean, who, which management consultant would have picked any of those 12 disciples to, to lead a world-changing movement? Who would have done that, you know? A couple of fishermen, a, a, a dodgy tax collector who'd been cheating on his accounts, you know? Who would have done that? Very unlikely. Same with these, each of these unlikely 12 judges that we will find as we go through this book. None of them would have passed any of our management tests of suitability for senior office. None at all. But they were God's men for the job, and that was all that mattered. Even Ehud's very difference was used by God. Now, you see, uh, if you're not a Christian here, I want to tell you that you don't need to fear being different when you come to church. Perhaps you feel you stand out from church people. You don't feel like you fit could be that you do have a physical brokenness. There is something that is damaged and it will not be healed. 
You've been to the doctors. You've even prayed about it. That's, that's why you're here. You're hoping that God will heal you. And God can do that. He could do that. He might do that. But he can also take the left-handed man with his deformed right hand as he is and use him for great and wonderful things. And he may have decided instead just to use you as you are, different though you may be. Perhaps it's not a physical difference, but an emotional one. There is a blockage inside, a, a brokenness that that has not healed. Well, again, Christ came to bind up the brokenhearted. Take that blockage to him. Let him wipe away the tears and soothe the pain with the oil of his love. And then set you on your feet. And before you know it, here's what's going to happen if you do that. That very issue, which you are so ashamed about and you cannot get over inside, that very issue... God will take and fashion to be like a a tactile place in your character that others can see and say, hey, he's walked where I've walked. He's been where I've been. And look at the peace that God has given him. I want that. Never fear being different. You know, it's like uh, how we sometimes say that people are, are just square pegs in round holes. Have you heard that phrase? But, you know, there may be a reason for that. It may be that God is wanting to draw more square holes to the church. And you're the square peg that they're going to feel comfortable with. You see, that the reality is that when someone becomes a Christian, they do not stop being themselves. They become more themselves, as they were always meant to be. You know, I, I sometimes uh, fear when I see... Uh, People copying those who have helped them, their mentors spiritually, copying them in in all sorts of superficial ways. Not copying them reading the Bible and praying, I'm glad of that, you know, but copying them in in their mannerisms or or cadence of speech, how they say things or or how they walk even. You can almost tell who's influenced too, you know, if you have an eye for it. And and, and all those superficial things of their life. And, 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 And I worry about that because it's almost as if the person doing the copying hasn't yet got enough faith to realize that God can use them as they are. Well, if you are ever tempted to think like that, I want you to remember the story of Ehud. Strange, weird, different. But God used him. Revealing the superpower of our third unlikely superhero next. But first, we want to thank you for joining us here for The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Our passion is to give gospel-centered teaching to as many folks as possible, and that's what this program is all about. Just a few minutes, we'll tell you how you can get resources to help you in your devotional growth. But right now, let's get back to our list of superheroes. Here's Josh. Othniel, too young. Ehud, too different. Shamgar, too simple. And so third, Shamgar, verse 31. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Now, I think the most important word there is to or also. 
Why is that, you say? Well, it's almost as if the narrator himself cannot quite believe that Shamgar was actually used by God. You know, Shamgar, he too saved Israel. You've got to be kidding. Who on earth was he? No. He's referred to again in chapter 5, verse 6. It says, in the days of Shamgar. So it seems as if Shamgar's judgeship, his leadership, uh, he too saved Israel. His, his saving uh, uh, purpose that God used him for, that, that in the days of Shamgar, that lasted a little while, despite the brevity of, this, uh, of its description right here. It may be that Shamgar was restricted to one area of the, of the total sort of Israelite territory at the time, which could explain why uh, 5 verse 6 tells us that it was in his days that things were going wrong, perhaps in other places other than where Shamgar was. And that, that could explain why, in, if you have a Bible, chapter 4 verse 1, the next stage of the development is described as after Ehud had died, not after Shamgar had died. He was perhaps just in one location. We don't know. That's a possibility. Now, he's only given a single verse, I think, as if to emphasize how easily he would be to dismiss. <laughs> Just one verse. And what's more, his choice of weapon, well, that's hardly sophisticated, is it? He used an ox goad. You know what one of those is? It's, it's the long pointy stick that in old times they, they used to sort of prod oxen so they kept on plowing down the right furrow. An ox goat. I don't know, perhaps he was a farmer. It's the first thing he set his eyes on before he went off war. I'll take me one of those, you know. And remarkably, against the Philistines, the Philistines, you see, probably the most technically accomplished of all of Israel's enemies at the time, Against the Philistines, he achieved a fabulous victory with, you know, against all the odds, with an ox goad. You know, we sophisticated Christians too often dismiss the Shamgars among us. We would want a Shamgar to get a degree, to go to military school, to learn how to organize a, a battle plan. And not just drop his pruning hook, pick up his ox goad, and off to the front lines of God's spiritual war. Now, there's nothing wrong with preparation. And as we've seen, God can use an Othniel and, and take him from the sort of burden of the over-expectation of his aristocratic heritage and release him. And, and God can use an Othniel as much as Shamgar, but he can also use a Shamgar. Baptists remember Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, as the prince of orators. What is forgotten sometimes about Spurgeon is that he began to preach as a teenager. He had no seminary education at all. And off he went to a large city center church and was like a stick of dynamite in the spiritual dam that had been holding back spiritual breakthrough. And, and, and you know, would we have been tempted to have packed Spurgeon off to college first, you know? Of course, Spurgeon was a, was a one-time kind of guy, but, but would we have wanted to smooth off all of his rough edges and, and put a spear in place of his ox code? You know, would, would Spurgeon have been better with an MDiv from a seminary? You know? I've got nothing against education. I, I spent years doing it. You know, but I sometimes think, and I, I, I've shared this with a few people, but I sometimes think, you know, I understand right as I say this, I sometimes think that while getting that PhD from Cambridge in three years was an accomplishment, it was even more of an accomplishment to forget it. Because somehow you've got to get more well-rounded and less, less technical and more personal. And 
understand the different sides of the equation and get more experience. It's not everything, is it, education? It's not everything. Surprises. God sends surprises everywhere. Shamgar, Ophniel, Ehud. Once we try and pin God down by our categories and define him like a, a medical textbook, we are in danger of dissecting a corpse. You know, studying God, right? Not worshipping the living God. We need the textbook in order to have a sense of what we're dealing with. We need our theological categories. Oh yes, but somewhere along the line, we also need to step back and wonder and realize that God is bigger than all of that. And he can use a, a shamgar, a simple farmer with an ox goat. Surprises. There's a, there's a pastor I know of a thriving Christian church in a Muslim country who was trained for the ministry like this. He was the first known believer of his race going to a Christian church as a member. And a man from Africa came to that church who looked at him and said, God has shown me your face in a vision and I'm here to train you to be a pastor. Years later, the man was preaching in his native language and building a very large and dynamic Christian congregation in a Muslim country. It's not how we tend to think training happens, is it? But it can happen that we are prepared for God's service by being a farmer as much as by being a student. When I look at uh, Shamgar here, who would be so easy to dismiss as being too simple to be used by God, what's that like? Uh, I I guess most of us here have uh, read or seen Lord of the Rings uh, and... uh, it seems to me a little like how uh, Samwise Gamgee, you know that guy? Samwise Gamgee, he kind of listens to some complicated idea, doesn't he? And he kind of, he listens to it and he kind of puts both hands on his hips and he puts his feet apart like this. And he, he sort of stares the guy in the eye and then he gives him some good old plain hobbit sense. We need that. We need that too. It's not that you have to be one nor the other. You don't have to be an Othniel, nor an Ehud, nor a Shamgar, but that God can use any for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. And so if you're sitting there thinking, I'm not clever enough to be used by God. And what on earth does God have me here coming to this church? Be reassured by Shamgar's example. You don't have to be an urbane sophisticate to be used by God. You can be a Shamgar. You don't have to be a a Gandalf, as it were. You can be a hobbit. And of course it was the hobbits who took the ring to the end and completed their task against the kind of extraordinary odds that Shamgar faced with his ox goad and his 600 Philistines. And so this passage is teaching us that whoever we are, if we are humble enough to depend upon the spirit of the Lord, God can use us for great and wonderful things in this world, except it's not teaching us that at all, not in its most profound place. Oh yeah, we're meant to learn from each of these judges or saviors, their role models, the humility that is required for us to be used by God in his kingdom. But in the end, we are not meant to just receive a savior but the Savior. Oh, Jesus, give me the strength to show us all how despised and rejected you were. 
man of sorrows. We esteemed him not. The Bible says he was like one from whom we hide our face. And yet it was for our sins that he was bruised. And by his stripes you can be healed. You know, if you have not yet repented of your sin and put your trust in that Savior, I urge you to do so this morning. I'm not asking you to jump out of your seat and shout hallelujah. You can do so if you want. That's fine. Be a good change. Why not? But you don't have to. I am asking you to realize that God has so designed matters that the reason why you are unable to be the person that you long to be, the root cause of your moral and personal frustrations, is that what you need is a divine makeover, a complete change, and that that salvation has been provided in the person of the most unlikely Savior imaginable, a Jew from a despised race, sent to redeem both Jew and Gentile alike. He refused the sword. He did not fight to prevent himself from being crucified, yet he won the battle. Do not despise him. He is no Othniel, Ehud, or Shamgar. He is Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. He is my Savior. And I want you to know him more than anything else in the world. I want you to know the hope that cannot be shaken, the peace that passes understanding, the joy in the midst of any storm, and I want you to know him now. Bow the knee. He is the humble king, the exalted servant. And he lives now to come and wash your feet, to take away your sins, to be your friend, your master, and your Lord. And what I urge of you this morning is not to turn away from him, because he's not what you had expected. That's Josh Moody, and this is The God-Centered Life. Josh, that's uh, a relatable list. Too young, too simple, too different. I'm guessing these perceived limitations may land for a few of us. They certainly do for me. I I remember when people would say, you're too young to be a senior pastor. And you know, then they said, uh, you're too this, that, and the other. And you, you will have different voices in your head. You're, you're the wrong kind of race to be reaching out to those kind of people. You're from the wrong background. You come from the wrong side of the tracks. You're too young, too different, too old, uh, too fill in the blank. Hmm. But in our weakness, God can use us, and when we're weak, we're strong. And obviously, these are not limitations limited to just someone who wants to be a pastor. It's, there's that version of it for each one of us, isn't there? Mm-hmm. That's right. 
Absolutely fantastic. Thank you for that. We're going to continue in our look at the book of Judges when we get together next time. wanted to let you know that the beginning of this study is available on our website. Other studies there, other books of the Bible that we've already gone through are available there as Josh peels back details within God's Word to help you in your devotional growth. And there's also an opportunity for you to partner with us. We're completely listened, supported, and if you're able to help us out, we're excited about some of the expansion that this program is seeing reaching out to new countries, new continents, and to folks who are listening and discovering the the importance of studying God's Word. If you can help us with that, we'd be happy to send you a great book from Alistair McGrath. You can get details of that by visiting our website, GodCenteredLife.org. That's also where you can partner with us. Next time we get together, are we celebrating violence? Especially this part... It's particularly in your face, isn't it? I mean, it celebrates the violence in worship, doesn't it? Blessed, what most blessed are you, J.L.? Because he went off and killed this guy. We're going to continue our look at the book of Judges when we get together next time. GodCenteredLife.org is where Josh is collecting resources for you. And this is your invitation to join Josh and myself next time, right here for the God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Josh Moody.